Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here. Um, so, last week and this week we're doing uh, different one-offs in the Law and Grace sermon series. So again, Law and Grace uh, was a sermon series we did a while back now, and um, essentially it's like the title says, it's you know talking about law and then how we see grace um, in, in contrast to that. And so last week, Kevin was talking about Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel. And this week, um, I want to talk about how we can strip passages of the Bible out of context and make it law that it was never intended to be. So we're going to look at a passage in the New Testament. Um, But before we do that, I want to start with prayer. And I ask that... Um, you would pray for me as well, that the Holy Spirit would speak through me. And so um, let's just let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to be here this morning. Um, we thank you that we get to read from your word. And, and we ask that you would help us now to see Jesus and to see grace maybe to see the ways that we um, use your word that it never was intended to be, and that you would just continue to point us to what Jesus has done for us and how that um, truly brings about change within our life. And so we give all this up to you, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The other day I was reading an article that was talking about a song that came out in 1998 that changed music forever. And that's a pretty bold statement, but I think it's true. And it's the song Believe by Cher. Does anyone here know what is distinctive about this song that changed music forever? Anyone call it out? Nathan got it right, yeah. It was the distinctive use of autotune on this song that changed music forever. Michael, that didn't count because we talked about that yesterday. Um, <laughs> so this, this song, uh, so there were, there were songs before Believe came out that used autotune, but it was this specific song that gave it its rise and prominence in music because afterwards, every artist wanted to use autotune on their songs to the extent that Um, This article claims that today, about 99% of music uses autotune in in their songs, which is extremely significant, right? Uh, Some of you maybe are familiar with autotune, maybe you've heard the term before, maybe some of you aren't, so I'm just going to give the bare bones crash course on autotune. So essentially what it is, it's a computer program that you can run your your vocal track through and and it pitches it perfectly. So if if you sing and you didn't hit all the notes perfectly, what this does is it kind of bumps it up for you or, you know, whatever that might be and and makes you sound better than you really did, right? You didn't really hit the notes and so the computer's helping you to hit those notes. Um, Some singers do this out of convenience because rather than spending four hours trying to get the vocal take just right because I could hit the note but I don't want to spend all that time on it, I'm just going to let the computer kind of, you know, 
fix my imperfections. But for, for others, they actually aren't always that great at hitting the note, and they know that, and they think, well, it doesn't matter because I can just let the computer do it for me. Um, and so a lot of my friends and family know that I'm kind of a music snob purist, and I go on my anti-autotune rants way, way too much. Uh, so I'm trying to refrain from doing that right now. But um, I have been thinking about this lately, and especially uh, preparing for, for today, because um, what it's been revealing to me is this, this reality that we live in a perfectionist culture, right? We live in a perfectionist culture. We want even our music to sound perfect. And, and this, this isn't really like a surprise to the music listener. Majority of people know that this is going on, that the singer they're listening to isn't really as good as they sound on the recording. Um, so much to the extent that I've actually heard that there are some producers who can't listen to music prior to auto-tune because it sounds too out of tune and not perfected enough for them. Like, that's actually true. Some people, some people are so entrenched in this that, that they can't listen to music prior to the perfectionist era of music, right? Um, and we do this in other ways. Uh, our social media page is filled with all the exciting, adventurous things that we do in our lives when maybe our life doesn't really feel or reflect that reality. Or you have, you have a special occasion, and you hire a photographer. And what does the photographer do? Well, he goes home and spends five hours to make the shading on your face look totally more awesome than it really was, right? We, we, perfect, um, we perfect photos. We want it to make it look better than it was if you were really there. Um, and the irony in, in all of this is that we recognize that we're actually not that perfect as we want to present ourselves to be, right? And I believe that we can let this perfectionist culture seep into our relationship with Jesus. And so I'm going to kind of poke at myself here a little bit because um, this is something that I've struggled with. And, you know, so I, I used to uh, binge preachers on YouTube, and I still enjoy listening to preachers on YouTube, but just I hope it's a healthier amount now. And... Um, but I would binge the, the fiery preachers that would like yell at you and tell you you're an awful Christian. And I'd be like, yeah, you're right, I am awful. And, and I would you know, feel really bad about myself. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna totally renovate my life and become a good Christian. And so 6 a.m., I'm, I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna have this three hour devotional time and it's gonna be awesome. And after the three hours, I'm gonna come out like beaming, like you know, radiant beam of light and people are gonna need to wear sunglasses to look at my face. You know, like, I'm being kind of humorous, but if you ask Elise, like, she would attest to that. I actually kind of thought this way. Like, I really did. She's nodding her head. And it's true. Um, you know, because I thought, man, if I just have the perfect devotional time, that's going to make me a good Christian. Or I would take passages like the one that we're going to look at this morning, and I would rip it out of its context. And, you know, I would say, okay, if I just do these, these eight things... This is going to make me a good Christian. And, and what happens is we always fail in that, right? 6 a.m. hits, I hit the snooze, and I get maybe like 15 minutes because I overslept and I'm cranky and, you know, I look worse than a radiant beam of light. And, you know, you just, like, you, you fail. Or you, or you try to abide by the list that you think is going to make you a good Christian, and you fail at it, right? 
And what can happen is, is you can either feel shame, right? You can feel shame and, and, and you go, man, maybe, maybe God doesn't really love me because uh, maybe my worth is dependent on how, how well I do. Or, or maybe for some of us, and I've wrestled with this too, we can turn it into um, arrogance. We can be like, you know, man, I want to, like, this is the list to be. And, and, and maybe we use this list against other people to make ourselves feel better, right? Because, because we recognize our imperfection, but we're like, but man, at least I'm striving for this, this, and this, right? And, and so we, we, we take these passages and we turn them into law that it was never intended to be. So we're going to take a look at um, 2 Peter chapter 1. We've got it up on the screens here. If you have a Bible on your phone or maybe a physical Bible, please turn there. Um, and so I'm going to kind of give you the summarization of what we're doing. So we're going to first rip this passage out of its context, and we're going to turn it into law. We're going to not be good center churchians or whatever that would be. And we're going to make this law, but then we're going to bring the context back into it, and, and we're going to, you know, see the, the grace that's, that's just littered in this passage. Um, and, and I want to kind of give my summarizing statement now so that you're thinking about it. And it's going to sound a little bit weird, but I'm trying to grab your attention. And this is the summarizing statement. The path to holiness is through failure. The path to holiness is through failure. And I intentionally want that to sound like a paradox. So, all right, we're going to unpack this here. So let's start in verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. For this very reason... Oh, let me just give, like, super brief context. So Peter, he's an apostle. Um, he was a follower of Jesus, and he, he wrote letters. This is um, the second letter of Peter's that we have. And um, this is actually a letter he wrote before he was about to die. So this is kind of his parting words to some churches. And so this is what he says to them. This is in his introduction to this letter. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so you're like me, right? And you take this passage, you rip it out of its context, and you think, this is, this is the list, right, of being a good Christian. And I mean, it's a pretty good list, right? Who doesn't want to be good at these things? And so now, okay, so this is what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going I'm to abide perfectly by these. But then you're a human being and, and you fail, right? So, so you think, well, okay, maybe, maybe Peter is kind of exposing my inability to do this. And Jesus did this perfectly, and so I just believe in Jesus, so I don't, I don't have to worry about it, right? But that's not what Peter says, because he says, for this very reason, make every effort. He's saying, this is something you ought to do. So, so then you think, well, okay, maybe this is just kind of like nice suggestions, right? Nice suggestions for, for being a good Christian. And because and, he says... Um, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. 
So you think, well, this is just a nice suggestion for a good life. But I want to crank up the anxiety level just a little bit. Um, And let's jump to verse 11. Because he says, for in this way will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so you see now how this can sound like a lot of law. And it almost sounds like Peter's not really being gospel-centered because if, if I'm not good at making every effort, then am I not going to be granted eternal life? Is that what Peter's saying? But here's the problem with that. And, and I was thinking about this. By what standard? At what point do you love well enough, have enough brotherly affection, are steadfast enough to actually achieve eternal life? When do you know? And, and, if, and if we read the Bible in this way, we're going to have just, just this immense weight on our shoulders because we're never going to know if we've finally arrived. By what standard? So is Peter actually saying that we, we merit our salvation by how good we are as Christians? That's not what Peter's saying. We need to bring back in the context, and it all depends on what he means by for in this way. So let's bring back the context, and now we're going to see the grace in all this. So let's jump up to verse 3 now. And I know I'm kind of jumping around, so bear with me. But I'm, I'm doing this intentionally. So Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Who, who is the his that he's talking about? In context, Peter's actually talking about Jesus, okay? So Jesus' divine power has granted to every single Christian everything you need that pertains to life and godliness. Everything you need is, is gifted to you. Um, I, I was listening to a, a preacher on this passage who said, it's not everything you want, but it's everything that you need, right? And, and it's for life and godliness. But how do we attain this gift? He says it's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So this just comes by knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. This isn't something that you work for. It's, it's through having a relationship with Jesus that, that Jesus graciously gifts you everything you need for life and godliness, but he, but he describes it of him who called us. And, and, and this is that idea of how in, in our relationship with Jesus, Jesus is the one who takes the initiative with us. He's the one who pursues us first. He calls us to him first. And so even within our knowledge of Jesus, that only happens because Jesus first pursued you. He first called you. So when we know Jesus, because he's called us, then he graciously grants to us everything that we need for life and godliness. And then he says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now, there are probably many promises that Peter could be thinking of here, and and I just pulled out one 
because I, I think it pertains very well to this. So this is from John 15, verse 5. And this is, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. Um, and he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is a promise of Jesus. Jesus is, is not saying, if you abide in me and I in you, then, then like try to work some fruit in it, right? Try to make fruit come out of it. No, he's saying, if, if you abide in me and I abide in you, fruit just will be the natural result of, of us abiding together. That's, that's a promise of Jesus. But he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing because it's not your own doing. That's Jesus working within you. That's Jesus bearing the fruit within you. And, and, and it's just through abiding in Jesus, right? That's, that's a promise. And we have so many other promises like this in, in the Bible. And, and, and I'm assuming this is what Peter is, is thinking about when he says, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, So that, why do we have these promises? So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So just like that promise, what, what was Jesus saying? When you abide in him, fruit will come out. That's, that's a promise of you are now becoming a partaker of Jesus' divine nature. Well, what does it mean to partake in the divine nature? Essentially, it's the idea of you are now partaking of Jesus's moral qualities. But when you hear that, you think, oh, just the ability to do good, right? That, that's, that's where my brain goes. But it's so much deeper than that. And, and so we're gonna pause on Peter for a second and, and um, I just kind of share a conversation that I had. So, because I, I think it'll help us with understanding this. So I was, I was talking to someone recently and, and they said to me, you know, I think sometimes just being obedient is a good thing. And, and I responded, because I disagreed, and I said, yeah, that's fine, but I, you have to understand the Pharisees were the most obedient people, and yet they were the furthest removed from God. And that didn't work so well, because I was talking to my mom, and, um, and my sister was listening, and she was like, did you just call mom a Pharisee? And I'm like, oh, no, I totally did, and I didn't mean to. Um, and it was not good. Here's some pro tips. Uh, one, don't backsass your mom, even if you think you're really right. And two, don't call your mom a Pharisee, even if you don't mean to. So, but anyways, um, but it raised a really interesting question for me. Um, and, I, and I've been reflecting on this quite a bit lately, because we, we, you know, like, like I said, we believe that the Pharisees were perfect, right? Or at least they were striving for perfection, and yet in all of their perfection, they still were, were so separate from God. When, when Jesus was standing before them, they couldn't understand that Jesus was God in the flesh. But we also, as Christians, believe that Jesus was 100% completely perfect, and he had to be in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross, right? Amen? We believe that. And um, so if that's true, then what separates Jesus from the Pharisees besides him being God in the flesh? But 
besides that part, um, what, what separates Jesus from, from the Pharisees? And, and I think it's the, the issue of the heart. And so there's a, a passage that um, I want us to look at real quick here because it comes from Matthew 15. Actually, I'm just going to read it on here, Peyton. So, um, so context here. So, so Jesus, um, he got into a lot of scuffles with the Pharisees. And uh, this is one of them. And it was the issue over food laws. So, you know, in the Old Testament, um, the, you know, they had these food laws about the things you could eat, the things you couldn't eat, right? Um, but then in Jesus' day, the Pharisees expanded the law of God and added their own tradition to it. And so they, they anticipated that people needed to abide by not only just the law of God, but also um, these traditions, right? And Jesus and his disciples didn't always abide by these traditions, especially when it came to um, food laws. You know, Jesus was perfect with the law, but he didn't abide by these added traditions that were by these, you know, Pharisees. And so um, they get in a scuffle, and they're like, why don't you follow these traditions? And this is Jesus' response, and I, I think it's rather interesting. So he calls the people to him, and he said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And if you're confused, well, the disciples were too, and so they say, okay, level with us, Jesus. What are you talking about? And so then Jesus expands this thought, and he says, um, are, you still, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. So if I'm giving my paraphrased version. Jesus is saying, do you really think that food is the issue? You really think food is the issue? Food is not the issue. The issue is your heart. The issue is your heart. And, and so here's kind of a silly analogy. But imagine, you know, I have my wallet and I pull out a dollar bill and I, and I place it on the floor. Did that defile anyone here? No. But now let's say I place it on the floor and every single one of you has this, you know, ravenous greed raging up inside of you and you all jump for the dollar bill and you're fighting for it because you want it. Did the, did the dollar bill defile you in that situation? No. It was your greedy heart that defiled you, right? It wasn't the dollar bill. And, and this is what Jesus is, is talking about. I know that was kind of a silly analogy, but um, Jesus is saying food's not the issue. The issue is your heart. And, and, and this, this kind of even goes back to Old Testament promises as well, that God says he's going to remedy the heart. He's going to fix the human heart. You know, in Jeremiah, he says, I'm, I'm going I'm to give you a new heart. In Ezekiel, he says, I'm going to take out that heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Because the issue is the heart. And this is what Jesus was talking about. And he talked about the heart a lot. Because this is what he came to do, is he came to remedy, to fix the heart, right? And maybe those were some of the promises 
that Peter was thinking about here. So let's go back to Peter. Um, and he says, so that through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So this isn't simply the, the fact that we, being a partaker of the divine nature isn't just, I now do good. I now have the ability to, to, to be a good person. It's you have a changed heart. Because what separated Jesus from the Pharisees was that Jesus was perfectly pure in intent in everything that he did. His heart was completely pure. But the Pharisees, in all of their striving for perfection, couldn't see that they had just as defiled of heart as anyone else. And that's the case of all of us, right? Maybe, maybe some of us here are struggling with sin, but maybe some of us actually think, I'm kind of a good person, or I'm a good Christian. And, and, I, and, and here's, here's the issue, is, is you need to recognize that even in the midst of all that, you still have just as defiled of a heart as any other person. And, but Jesus comes to remedy the heart. He comes to fix it for us. And that's what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. Not that we just do good, but that we have a changed heart. And maybe, maybe doing good things is a result of that, but it's an issue of the heart. And this is, um, this is supported even further when Peter says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So when, when, when Jesus calls you, when he pursues you and you know him, it's as if you have escaped the corruption that is in this world. We know that our world is corrupt. You know, I mean, it's literally decaying, right? Like our bodies are decaying. But there's also the, the spiritual corruption within us. And, 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 and we have escaped that through Jesus, through what he's done for us. But then he also says, in, in this world, because of sinful desire. And Peter could have said sin, but he didn't. He said sinful desire. The, the word there could be lust. Because, again, he's speaking not about just obedience and about doing things, but this is about the issue of the heart, right? And so this is what Jesus saves us from, is, is from our broken heart. And we now become a partaker of the divine nature. So let's jump back to verse 11. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, did we not just expand Peter saying in this way? In this way, when Jesus calls you, and then when you know him because he's called you, and then when he gives to you everything that you need for life and godliness, and when he gives you great and precious promises that he is going to make you a partaker of his divine nature, and then through that, you can make every effort. Why? Because Jesus is doing that through you. Then in this way will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, this is not about just doing good things. This is about Jesus and his work through you. But now we're going to get to my all-time favorite verse. This is one of my favorite passages, by the way. That's why I'm, like, so excited about this. But... This is like the icing on top of the cake, and it's, it's so good. So let's jump to verse 9. Peter says, for whoever lacks these qualities. Why does he have to say that? Why does he have to say for whoever lacks these qualities? Because he assumes failure. He assumes failure. 
So all of us in the room, we need to listen to this because all of us at, at some point in our life have failed. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. He, he's expanding on this image of being unable to see. Tom Schreiner in his commentary on Second Peter said, the inability to see what is most important. What's most important. So what is the thing that's most important? Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I love that. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So, what is Peter saying is the issue of you not being able to make every effort and adding these qualities to your faith? Is it that you didn't try hard enough? Is it that you didn't pray enough? Do an, enough Bible time in the morning? No, the, the issue is that you have forgotten what Jesus has done for you. Because when, when were we cleansed from our sins? When Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins. And, and, and if he's saying you've forgotten it, what, what, is, what is the opposite of forgetting? It's remembering. Peter's inviting us to remember, and I think daily, remember what Jesus has done for us because that is the key to experiencing change in our lives. It's not by just doing more, trying harder, being better. It's by remembering what Jesus has done. And, and this assumes that you have to then remember your own failure as well. And this is why this is kind of unattractive to some people. And um, so I wasn't sure if I was going to quote this, but I think I will because I think I have the time. But um, so there's a guy by the name David Zoll. Um, Kevin Payton and I actually got to hear him speak. And he has a book um, low Anthropology. So David Zoll, is that Mockingbird Ministry? Is that correct? He, he, he fronts a uh, ministry called Mockingbird Ministry. And um, he has this book, Low Anthropology. Essentially, it's the idea of human failure and how we can resonate with our human failure. And so he, he pits this against high anthropology, with his, which is this idea of I can achieve, I will do. And this is what he says about the idea of failure and human limitations. He says, modern ears tend to talk about human limitations as defeating, even shame-inducing. Far more defeating and shame-inducing is the belief that I am capable of transcending my limitations, but just haven't been able to pull it off yet. Essentially, he's saying it, it's, it's more shame-inducing to think I can do it, but I just haven't done it yet. Because deep down we know that we, we fail. We know this. And so that's what Peter's saying is you, you need to remember that you're in desperate need of a savior. You need to run back to that moment when Jesus died on the cross for you. But then here's like, okay, so if that was the icing on the cake, here's the cherry on top of this cake. And, and, he, and he uses the word cleansed. He doesn't say forgiven. He could, he could have said forgiven, but he doesn't. He says cleansed. In Greek, it's the word katharismos. And it's the, the idea of cleansing or purification, especially like ritual purification. And so this goes back to the Old Testament, 
Um, so, so in the Old Testament worship, um, if you were defiled in any way of, of any sort of impurity, you, you were considered, you know, unholy or, or impure, and you would have to um, go through a ritual of cleansing, and they would do this even for sins as well, you know, like the Day of Atonement, and it was to, to cleanse um, to cleanse us from, from sins, right? And so, so they would do this in order to be able to worship God, to approach Him, to be in His presence. Um, and so then, okay, so, so that's kind of the background. But um, we actually had another Law and Grace sermon. Um, it was Davis, right, who, who preached on the miracle of uh, Jesus turning water into wine. And... He, he pointed out how, so Jesus is at this wedding, and he has the servants fill these, these, these jars, these water jars, full, you know, full of water, and, and he uses that to turn it into wine. And what were the jars? They were the jars of purification, of katharismas. And, and it's symbolizing how the new means of purification is by Jesus' blood. The new means of, of purifying yourself is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's other passages in the Bible that, that specifically talk about this, but I love that image, right? And so this is what Peter's saying, is, is, is you need to remember that, that what Jesus did for you on the cross, and, and most definitely Jesus forgave you, but even more so, Jesus has cleansed you from your sins, and, and, and this goes back to the idea of being a partaker of the divine nature. You are no longer in bondage to sin in the same way. We're still going to wrestle. We're still going to struggle. But, but, but there has been a change within you when you, and, and, and so Peter's saying, you got to remember this. Run back to that moment when you realized you are in desperate need of a Savior and you needed someone to shed his blood so that you could be cleansed and purified. So again, our, our inability to do well as a Christian is not try harder, do better, pray more. Although those are good things. Praying is awesome. Do it. The way we experience change, the path to holiness, is through remembering that you are not holy. It's through remembering that you are in desperate need of someone who is holy to die for you, to cleanse you. And it's through that that we are cleansed. We do have a new heart. And so I just want to implore us, in, in our struggles, whatever we're going through, just remind yourself, maybe in the morning, get up and say, I have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I need a Savior. Because that's where we experience change. Um, we're going to move into our gospel application and I feel like this whole sermon was kind of just a summation of gospel application. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And so we don't want you walking out of here with, you know, the eight things of here's what I got to do to be a good Christian. It's just reminding ourselves 
of what Jesus has done for us. It's like what Peter says, remember the cross. And so this is the gospel application. Jesus has cleansed you. Jesus has cleansed you. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and and we're going to spend time actually rehearsing this. We're going to sing songs that speak specifically of of Jesus' blood cleansing us. And this is another way in which we can just remember this together.